Welcome to this uh, new Ed Voices podcast by Education International. My name is Elena Schulz and I'm your host. And today I have the honor to welcome Greg Thompson, researcher at Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. And our very own Martin Henry, um, research coordinator at uh, Education International. Hi, Martin. Hi, Helena. So we're here today to talk about the status of teachers, a topic that is uh, at the center of EI's research and also EI's advocacy, I believe. Um, can you tell us a bit more about uh, why it is so important for us? Yeah, thanks, Elena. Well, the status of teachers is of critical importance to how teachers respond in the classroom. And it's a triennial survey that we have been committed to that looks to influence the SEAT um, instrument, which is an instrument that checks on the recommendation on the status of teachers. So for us, it's a very high profile and important piece of work because it's looking at gathering information from around the world on what the current status, teach, status of teachers is. And, and it's really good to be working with Greg this time Last time we worked with Nellie Stromquist, you will remember. So we've had an America's um, perspective on the status of teachers. Now we're working with Greg from Australia. So we've moved around the other side of the globe. And it's important for us to keep considering different perspectives as we work through this complex issue. So I'm going to go into some questions now, Greg, so we, we can think about actually what constructs the status of teachers, because mm. Greg will be working through that data and sifting it and giving us his, his um, knowledge of, of how that fits within the frame. What do you think is the single biggest influence on the status of teachers? The single biggest influence is a really difficult question. I mean, I think, I think that sort of one of the, one of the most important um, influences is the discourse that appears in the media, and the, the arguments that are sort of made around governments, around, you know, where it is that a teaching profession in a given country is actually actually finds itself, how it's valued, and, um, you know, the, the aims and aspirations that governments and bureaucracies have for that teaching profession. Um, I think that, you know, there's a, you know, there's a whole, there's a lot of common sense arguments around the status of um, the teaching profession that we need to, you know, that um, we need to acknowledge. And these are around sort of like conditions. These are around pay. These are around the, the sort of, you know, the workplace environment in which teachers actually, you know, um, um, live and work in, you know, um, in, a, in a school week. Okay. And, and we know from our last report that perceptions about the status of teacher were under pressure from government and media. Yet we've had a, a really unique past 12 months, probably less for you in Australia than here in Belgium, where we're still in the teeth of COVID, but you've certainly mm. had your own slice of experience. Do you mm. think it likely that, that our experience of the pandemic and the way that parents have responded to having to teach their kids and have teachers in their homes, as it were, via the screen, has affected our perception on the status of teachers? 
Well, I think it's a really interesting question. I think there's probably multiple things going on. I think the first thing is um, there's probably been a recognition from a number of parents that, you know, teaching is actually a lot more difficult, right, than, um, you know, what may uh, commonly commonly be considered. So I think that, you know, the art of pedagogy, the, the sort of science and knowledge that sits behind teaching, the um, being able to sort of, you know, help students actually progress through curriculum, et cetera, right, is, you know, very much at the core of, you know, um, the teaching profession. And these are obviously skills that are built up over and, you know, through, you know, you know ITE programs, et cetera. And I don't think it's an easy job, right? I think it's a, I think it's a very technically difficult job. I think it's a, but also I think it's also very emotionally difficult and I think it's a psychologically demanding job. And I think a lot of people got a bit of an insight into that through COVID. But I guess one of the one of the things that I found most fascinating around the COVID conversation was about how governments and you know various commentators were able to pivot so quickly from their usual conversation around you know the lack of teacher quality within their sort of you know, given jurisdiction to the argument that teachers are essential workers, right? That they are so critical for the maintenance of, um, uh, you know, social cohesion, right, for, you know, the, the well-being of young people, for, um, uh, you know, the ways in which communities are able to deal with difficult times, right? And I thought that was a really interesting pivot in the conversation. Unfortunately, I'm not sure how long it's lasted. You've, um, you've raised an issue which takes me neatly to the next question and you do remind me of our old mate Jim Marshall as you do <laughs> so because you're starting to think about particular labels and ways of constructing the teacher. And if we think about yourself as a teacher, and I know that you're a woodwork, an English and a history teacher, which as a combination is pretty unique in my experience. So what do you think um, has, has happened to teacher identity? Uh, oh, and a teacher identity and teacher professionalism are related, but not exactly the same thing. Has it mm. been shaped, enhanced or hampered by education systems? And how might the questions we are asking in this survey give us an insight into how this is shifting? Mm. I think that, um, I think it's a, once again, that's another really good question. I think that for me, I've always thought that, you know, the the capacity for teachers to do their job cannot exceed the conditions under which they find themselves, you know, find themselves working. And, you know, all teachers have the, um, um, you know, should have the expectation that their workplace is safe, that they're supported through professional learning, that they, um, they have opportunities, right, to, um, um, you know, access a, a wide variety of supports, offered by the governments that they don't have to pay for out of their own pockets. And I think, I think that you know, this is something that perhaps many systems have forgotten in their desire to, um, uh, you know, improve educational achievement, you know, is that, you know, that can only come right through an investment in um, uh, teachers and an investment in, you know, um, you know, curriculum development, um, pedagogical development, and understanding of, you know, latest research, et cetera. Um, 
and I, th I think a lot of a lot of systems are struggling with that. You know, there's a sort of sense at which education is a cost that needs to be pruned, right? And I think that a lot of teachers are finding that you know their workload is actually um, becoming more and more intense as the expectations on them become greater, um, wider, more um, uh, more complex. Okay, well that takes us neatly to the next question. Teacher status is made up of a mysterious mix of professionalism, material conditions and trust. How do you go about deconstructing such a heady brew? And, and that, is the, that is the Jim Marshall question, right? Yeah, what is deconstruction? Um, well, I, think, I think one of the things that you know, education systems around the world have really, really sort of um, played with over the last you know, 20 to 30 years is around this concept of autonomy. And what they've decided is that, you know, the way to sort of um, harness, you know, teacher professionalism, et cetera, is through making schools more autonomous in the hope that they'll be more um, responsive to their local community. In practice, it's, it's often been um, a strategy that is about withdrawing sort of centralised service, right, so that, you know, we trust the principal to make decisions, right, is, you know, a sleight of hand really around, you know, you're on your own, pal. And I think there is a lot of concern around um, how it is that in as systems sort of move towards these more autonomous arrangement of schools, you know, whether it's academies or charter schools or, you know, independent public schools, whatever it may be, how it is that systems are still maintaining that, that sort of support that is needed for the things we spoke about before. But I think the other thing that's really interesting around autonomy is that the question is always around what autonomy and for whom? Because teaching is always going to be, you know, um, a state-mediated profession in that, you know, there, are always, there is always a very um, um, keen interest taken by governments and various interest groups around issues like curriculum, around issues like what constitutes teacher training, around you know, what it is that should be the core knowledge of teachers, what are things such as discipline policy, what do we expect around, um, uh, you know, assessment, et cetera. And so, you know, the question around autonomy is always, you know, what are the forms of autonomy that are available to teachers within these systems where um, there are a whole heap of prescriptions around what it is that people can do and not do. And I always, I sometimes feel around these sort of more autonomous systems and, you know, it'd be very interesting in terms of research that we're doing now through the, um, the survey on the global status of teachers, right, is how it is that teachers are, and, you know, principals and school leaders and those other, you know, paraprofessionals working within educational institutions, what is it that they're free to do? Right. And how is it that they're able to, um, you know, to see this as um, a professional identity or a series of you know, professional actions that they're able to take in their work? Well, you raise a really interesting point there, and I'm just going to explore this a little. Um, the interest of governments in retaining control which they've been able to do in many of the systems you're talking about. While they've, they've changed with the structures and they've moved towards an autonomous structure, which has opened the way to privatisation, let's be honest. Uh, and we do think that governments should 
and must take responsibility for education and should be completely responsible for what happens for every student and not just those in the best position. Um, how have they managed to do that? It, it seems to me a sleight of hand that they've removed themselves from support and responsibility. So it's all care and no responsibility, yet they've also managed to maintain control. Well, I, I think... I know. I think this once again it speaks to a sort of a, a particular logic of government that we've seen. You know, not just in education, but in healthcare and in other sort of forms of you know social services, right? Which is about you know trying to make them, um, you know, trying to sort of like frame them within an economic paradigm that is about making them cost effective. That is about sort of seeing them as a cost on a particular budget line. Right, rather than seeing them as an investment, and it's not like I said, it's not just education that finds itself you know, in this particular um, um, situation. And there is this sort of ongoing logic around, you know, um, government that um, balancing the books in the short term, you're know, withdrawing funding. You know, I know that sort of in England, for example, there was you know, policies around austerity, right, that sort of really impacted the work that you know schools could do that um, it always seems such a short-sighted goal. And that's why, the, that's why the pivot that we spoke about before around this idea that sort of this, this flip around teachers as to, you know, you, know, you guys have got to take your whack and take your cut because you're a, you're a heavy burden on government to, right, oh, my goodness, you're such essential workers for us in the time of the pandemic was such an interesting and, you know, there's a cynical part of me that thinks, you know, perhaps an opportunistic move, right? Given that the, the, the sort of the pivot back seemed to happen so quickly, you know, where schools and I think the, the personnel within there were very concerned about their safety and the safety of their families as they were asked to go and open schools back up again, if they were even allowed to close them at all, right? And government suddenly shifted from, you know, the, the, the sort of the heroes of, you know, this rhetoric of the heroes of COVID, right, to the people that were, you know, harming the chances of young people and children. And I think that, you know, I think this is an ongoing problem in our conversations around education that, you know, teachers, you know, principals, you know, and not school communities, they're such easy targets once you apply that economic logic to the work that's done there, right? But they're not factories, right? And, you know, we should... Um, think about the work that's done there, you know, in a far more, um, um, you know, broad understanding of what value is. So you're placing it within a political economy, which I love too, um, that which takes us neatly to our last question. The ability of a teacher to teach is directly affected by their status. How do you think this happens? And what do you think of the role of parents, school, community and system in influencing this. And we've taught a, fa a fair bit about system, but not so much about that community level. So what's that mm. intermediary level? Well, I think I'll go back to the, one of the points I made earlier that, you know, that this, it's not necessarily the status of teaching that um, influences how it is that teachers are able to do their job. It's the material conditions Right, that um, result from the status of teachers that impact how it is that teachers are able to do their jobs. And, you know, the important thing is that, you know, arguments around, you know, the quality of your teaching workforce, you know, the curriculum that, you know, the government decides that they set, 
you know, the, um, the various um, ways that sort of newspapers and the media decide to, to sort of seize on various you know, test results, for international test results, for example. The way that these seem to act as, um, you know, catalysts for governments actually going the opposite way than sort of supporting teachers to, you know, do the best job that they can, it often seems to result in, well, you're not doing what we want anyway, so how about we remove funding? Let's see if that, you know, act, you know sort of acts as a, as a sort of a, um, an incentive for you to do better. And, of course, it never will. So that's the first thing that I would say. I think the, I think the second thing I would say is that there is a sense that the, this idea around professionalism that we often hear is a somewhat untroubled idea, okay? And, and I think there is a lot more work that needs to be done around what it is that teaching as a profession aspires to be. Do we want to be lawyers, right? Is that the, is that the sort of the aspect of the profession, you know, the, of, of the, sorry, professionalism that we think we want to be? Do we want to be like, you know, a, a doctors, you know, like um, there's, a, there's, a very, there's a very sort of strong sense that, you know, um, professionalism for some is about being held in the same status as doctors within a given community. And, and I think that, and I think there are a number of problems, right, with how it is that professionalism is actually used by various people. And in a funny way, it's become almost a, a sliding signifier. Everybody is able to claim I'm improving the profession or the professionalism of teachers by giving people autonomy, by taking autonomy away, by improving conditions, by reducing conditions, by increasing pay only for some, by reducing pay for others, by increasing class size, you know, this is all about professionalism. And I think we'd be, you know, as a, you know, as, as a global, um, you know, group, we'd be in a really, it'd be a really interesting project to go through and say, well, when we say teachers are a profession, here are the things we would really like to see and aspire to within that profession for ourselves, not necessarily in comparison to how it is that other professions have managed those questions. And I think that's one of the real political projects for a group like EI, for the various teacher um, uh, associations and unions and organisations around the world who make EI up. I think that would be a really um, a powerful pushback against some of the things that we've spoken about before. I think you've hit on a really important issue for us and we're looking forward to you helping us continue to mould and shape that figure of what it is to be a professional teacher. And you'll be aware of our work on professional standards, which speaks into that as well. Um, I think also, as we're wrapping up, you've taken me neatly to the final, final question, which <laughs> is always a personal one. And you have had a warning about this, but I know you've been building your house and working on your house in that true Australian fashion. And given that we're trying to shape this professionalism of the teacher, which is a, a complicated thing, but not as complicated for me as building your house, which is incredibly <laughs> beyond my ken. But if we go back to that sort of model, what do you think is the most difficult thing about building your own house? The most difficult thing about building your own house? I mean, it's actually like 
once again, I think it's a really good analogy because I think the most difficult thing about building your own house is about the transference of expertise from one domain to another, right? So, you know, if you know how to do some woodwork, it doesn't necessarily mean you know how to fix plumbing or you know how to wire, you know, um, yeah, sockets or whatever it might be. And I think teaching is a lot like that as well. It's one of the it's one of the great professions that um, that requires a little bit of everything, you know, from the people you know to excel at. And I think that's why it's you know, it's such an intriguing profession and the status of teachers is so important because it can never be simply reduced to, you know, as like, you know, for example, quality does not necessarily correspond with test scores or the production of test scores, right? You know, um, or, you know, um, the, the various, you know, pedagogic traditions that people align themselves with. And I think that, that once again is unrecognized outside of the profession itself. And I think one of the first questions you asked was about, you know, the experience of parents during lockdown. And I think that's one of the struggles that they had, right? Is that, you know, teaching always proceeds, up, you know, through multiple lines of expertise and knowledge systems and, um, um, you know, capacities right, across multiple students in any given time. And it's not easy just to sort of tap into that and, you know, and tap into that craft, that art and that science, right, you know, just by clicking your fingers. Okay. Seeing well, that valued would be wonderful, I think. Well, thanks very much for your time, Greg. And we'll wonder when you're going to get the Bledisloe cop back from the old All Blacks, but that could be a long time coming. I've never heard of the Sport Rugby Union. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Thank you. We Let me see you again. Let me see you again. Martin, Henry, Research Coordinator of Education International. Thank you very much for being with us today. And Greg Thompson, of course, Research at Queensland University of Technology. Thank you very much for your insights for this very interesting talk. We're looking forward to hearing um, about your analysis of our survey, which will help us navigate these uncertain times and will probably be a very strong advocacy tool for our members. Thank you, Helena. And, and also, can I just say thank you to everybody who has done the yards and filled the survey in and come back and, you know, um, really thought about those questions in order to do the best by the members of their professional associations, unions, organisations, etc. It's much appreciated. We are all looking forward to the results and uh, stay tuned for more. Thank you very much. Thank you.